Welcome to the In Common Podcast. This is Stefan Partilow. In today's episode, Courtney and I are speaking with Kimberly Peters. Kimberly is a professor of marine governance at the Helmholtz Institute for Functional Marine Biodiversity and in collaboration with the Alfred Wegener Institute and the University of Oldenburg in Germany. As a human geographer, Kimberly is interested in the social, cultural, and political workings of the world around us. Her research group seeks to explore how governance does not just happen anywhere, but somewhere, and is shaped by spatial processes. Her work investigates how the geography of what we seek to govern, or do govern, is shaped by location, the character and qualities of place and relations with surrounding spaces. During our talk, I enjoyed her reflections on how geography has dealt with and is influenced by its historical legacy and how much of the current perspectives in human geography are critical because of that history. We also discuss her relationship to teaching and her students, working in an interdisciplinary institute, leaving your disciplinary comfort zone, and research topics she is currently pursuing. This is the In Common Podcast. You've just moved to Germany, which is where I'm also located. Um, neither of us are German. So I'm definitely interested to hear what your thoughts are on the transition into a new country. Because you have been in the UK for most of your academic career, it seems like. How was that moving from uh, from a place where you were probably so well-rooted and knowing the community into into a new academic space? Yeah, I mean, that's it's an interesting question. It was a question I asked myself at four o'clock in the morning uh, recently when I did wake up and think, oh, God, I'm living in another country. Um, because I have to be honest, I was something I never thought I would ever do would be um, live and work in, a, in another country. Um, when I was growing up, I hadn't been I was born, brought up in, in London, just outside of London. And I'd never been north of the M25 until I was off to until I went to university and I went to university a little bit later as well so I was very much a kind of you know sort of southern home body um and yeah so it sort of seems a bit it seems a bit strange now but I think the decision was driven by a, a lot of different things um I think the opportunity to refocus my career a little bit more on research was a big big driver so there was a great opportunity in Germany um with really interesting people doing interesting stuff and I think this job gave me the opportunity to refocus on my research to do something to go back to the sea basically and so that was the appeal and the appeal also of of, of living um living within Europe you know I was born as a European citizen I've always been European and so to be able to be in Europe was really important for me as well I'm not as familiar with geography uh, it's it's not my disciplinary background you could say but I always look to it as one that's maybe the original or inherently interdisciplinary, that, or maybe that's not the position that people see from inside who are maybe deeply entrenched. Mm. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the word, do you, know, do you know what the word geography means? Do you know what the translation of geography is? I think it's quite lovely, actually. Uh, it means earth writing. So geographers are earth writers, or our job is to write about the earth or to write about the world. And it has these kind of different parts, as you say. It has this this kind of we write about its human dimensions and we write about its physical dimensions. And you tend to find there's those two camps of geography, this kind of human and physical and physical geography. But within that it's split into many, many more parts. So physical geographers would you would have uh, you can have glaciologists, geomorphologists, 
quaternary scientists and uh, experts in in soil, in tree rings, in climate. And then on the other hand, um, in human geography, it's split into these further parts of how we understand the human world or write about the human earth, which is we might write about it socially, culturally, politically. Um, we might write about it economically. So it has all of these different components and there are overlaps between them. And human and physical geography have always been kind of quite separate. They've almost been these kind of, because epistemologically and ontologically, they're different. They're different ways of thinking about the world. They use different kinds of data. They use different kinds of questions. Ultimately, they write the world or write the earth in different ways. Um, But increasingly now they are coming together on this understanding that to really write about the earth and to write about the world, you can't separate the human and the physical. It's just not possible. The two always come together. So we're seeing this kind of overlap now, um, particularly in geography, where you used to have these kind of separate camps, but actually there's there's lots of touching points now between the two between the two kind of big areas of the discipline. Maybe this is a simplistic way of seeing it, but I would see more as physical geography is more of a positivistic observational earth systems science and human geography is more constructed, culturally rooted. Uh, less positivistic science does that characterize it in any way at all yeah that's perfect and if you can come and do my lectures next term that'd be great <laughs> um so that was really nicely put i think i think that is that is the key difference i think for for physical geography there's often this kind of um realist ontology that the world is out there and we extract things from it and we take it back to the lab and we explore it and then we can say things about the world Whereas mostly for human geographers, we believe the world out there is something that we make, that we're constructing, that we're forming all the time. And so that kind of, yeah, those different, that, that difference between the positivist and the, the objective and the subjective, um, the positivist and the kind of the way in which the world is ideographic and constructed, that can sometimes be a tension between the two sides of the discipline. Um, but I think that you know, we're seeing increasingly, not just in geography, but other disciplines, the need for interdisciplinarity. And we're almost seeing intradisciplinarity in geography, kind of like human and physical geographers talking to each other, which is kind of, you know, quite nice. So, yeah, because I think ultimately that's what that's what we need to be doing. Yeah. Courtney, you want to jump in? I do. Yeah. I just I'm curious, since I'm in the same boat as Stefan, where um, I am geography adjacent, I would say. I'm not um, deeply embedded in the field, but um, follow a lot of, especially the sort of human, that that inter- that intersection that you talked about, where you're mm-hmm. starting to see some of the interdisciplinary work. And I'm curious, historically, if you know about where that, like, where did that human versus physical come from in the field? Mm-hmm. Was that, was that emerging of, of, Two different disciplines or was that like a you know evolved as an as a split in the road like is I just don't know the history of the field at all I'm wondering if you have any insight there yeah I mean I think um I don't know so much a, a split in the field um geography as a discipline is a really young discipline um which I think sometimes I don't know if that surprises either of you but it was actually only formalized as a discipline in the late 1800s so it's 
as far as disciplines go compared to the sciences or history as a sort of enshrined discipline that you can go and study geography is very young um so the first geography degrees were, were offered um at the end of the 1800s and so what you kind of had before that were explorers who kind of masquerade as geographers and you have this sort of form of geography where um, sort of early explorers and, and people like this include German figures like Alexander von Humboldt and they would go out into the world and they would actually explore both human and physical components and they would jot it down in field diaries and notebooks and they would write about both of those both of those components and so I think where the split came was with the formalization of the discipline and this understanding that the two strands seem to in some ways depart and I think actually the 20th century was where that real depart happened um I don't know how much you know about the history of geography geography actually has a really troubling it's a really troubling history I don't know if you know too much about the history of the discipline um so basically um geography was formalized as this discipline and it was interested in these kind of relationships between the world between these sort of um you know between the landscape and the people and culture and all those things that did actually interlink at that point um and many early geographers who were part of the formalization of the discipline um began to get really interested in sort of what we would call sort of traditional geopolitics so the link between politics and the earth um and then it starts to get really difficult because Lots of the ideas that early geographers were coming out with um, were kind of appropriated by politicians. So a good example of that would be the geographer Frederick Ratzel, who was a, another German geographer. Um, he wrote a theory of Lebensraum, the idea that people needed to take space, to grow space. And that was very famously used and by the Nazi party to legitimise some of their arguments about the expansion of territory. So geography had a real crisis point at the end of the 1800s, uh, sorry, the end of the um, 1800s into the early 1900s, um, because effectively ideas that were coming out of geography were being used for these reasons. And even before geography was formalised as a discipline, some of the earlier explorers, what they were doing was also really, really, really problematic and deeply troubling, because, of course, we had explorers going out, exploring the world as if they had discovered it. They were taking it back. They were showing other places to audiences back in European countries. Some of the early work of those explorers was used to legitimise things such as uh, colonialism and the rise of empire. So geography, I mean, you know, when, when I teach geography to my students, you know, lots of students are really proud to be geographers because they're like, you know, we're going to save the planet. And it's like, well, you know, to, you have to understand that geography started so far from that you know and, and early geographical figures were were racist they were kind of you know they were going into the world and they were doing things that were that, that have shaped the world as it's come to be today and all of the 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 things that that create the the deep inequalities prejudice discrimination that we have in the world today come from some of those early origins of of this discipline and so I, yeah, so I kind of always say to my students, we need to be much more critical about this kind of, you know, world saving subject because it's, it's, it's very far from that. But going back to your question, very long winded answer. 
which is geography then had this really troubling, really, really troubling um, history. And in the early part of the 20th century, particularly after World War II, geography kind of died as a discipline. And all around the world, geography departments shut, the most famous being Harvard, which has never reopened. So Harvard doesn't have a geography department. Um, because geography was, you know, who wants to be involved with this discipline, this discipline that has this past? You know, geography's geography's kind of dead. It doesn't doesn't exist. Um, it shouldn't exist as a discipline. Um, and then geography kind of it kind of comes back to the fore in the 1950s and 60s. And that's when we begin to see this split because lots of geographers began to um, study the world in different ways. So you had a set of people who wanted to go out and explore very apolitically. What is the geo? What what is what is the structure of of the rock? What is the the form of the landscape? Why does the river, you know, why does it bend the way it does? What's the processes of erosion and deposition? So they were doing very apolitical geography, um, and the same with human geographers. They began to kind of say, well, this is where such and such people live, and this is the culture, and this is how it's emerged. But they were doing things that were very apolitical, and that was the kind of reemergence of geography, and it was. It was more divided than the geography that had come before. So um, I'm pretty sure that took about um, 11 and a half minutes and was, <laughs> had about 17 different tangents in it. But um. That's wonderful. There's so many things that are interesting in there. One of them is now I would say geog- human geography, if, I'm, if I get the right subsection of geography, that it's really pushing it back that in the against that in the opposite direction now where it's really taking a more critical view of the world if that's the right term to use and really rethink about the how the past has shaped the current world that we're in and do you think that's a direct response to that uh, as the discipline has re-emerged from that past yeah i mean it's kind of i think that from the sort of 1960s onwards geography became very critical you know through the 1960s 70s there was through the work of some kind of quite well-known geographers people like david harvey this this um this use of marxist ideas we saw the rise of what was called radical marxist geography um and then you know through the 70s um 80s a rise of of kind of critical critical geography based on on taking on board ideas from from different strands of feminism uh, became really big and then um, there was a rise in kind of post-colonial thought and now many of the debates are, are not around post-colonial post-colonialism but de- decolonial geography and, and who who should be authoring those those geographies and and so yeah I think you see through the 20th century this particularly in human geography it's really difficult um, because I think Many human geographers are also activists. I think many human geographers are their politics is front and center, um, and that is a challenge because you know our job also as educators is 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 not to be in some ways not to be political. You know, my job is not to tell my students how to think about things; it's to give them the tools to think for themselves. Um, and you know, if you if you teach students critical skills, then hopefully they'll be able to make up their own mind about things. Um, but then that's really difficult because many geographers are activists in their field. You know, many social geographers are are going out and they are directly involved in policies um, around homelessness, for example. Or um, one of my colleagues is involved in um, thinking about prisons and carceral spaces and, 
and, and abolitionism and, and those kinds of things. So there's really interesting, you know, how, how do we deal with, with the sort of space of the prison? And so there's lots of, um, yeah, so geographers have this, they occupy this weird territory where we're both kind of objective scholars. If you can ever be that, I don't believe we, we can be, but um, but also, yeah, we're, we're deeply invested in the things that we that we study. I want to get into your work transferring over to Oldenburg, where you're now professor of marine governance. I'm going to ask one thing before that, though, because I think it, it might relate more to what we just talked about now. And that's a, a recent book that you just had out called Your Human Geography Dissertation. And a few times during your explanation there, you mentioned about how you engage with your students and how you explain geography and, and this history. And and I'm wondering what, what motivated you to put together a resource that is directly looking back towards the next generation of this discipline. Mm, yeah, I mean, that book, <laughs> I don't really know what to say about that book. That book was like a labor of love, right? It was like, it was like the publisher hated me. It was like four years late. And, you know, I mean, everything we do is kind of a little bit delayed, of course. But, um, you know, I think I was, I was given some anonymous advice um, <laughs> when I wrote that book, which was um, don't write a textbook. You know, a textbook isn't going to help your career. That's not the thing you should do. You should focus on your research. And yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that's the advice that you get. And when I got the book contract, you know, I was kind of, you know, quite a bit younger. Don't know why it took such a long time to write. Um, but yeah, and for me, yeah, it was just, it was a book I really wanted to write. I really wanted to, I'd been teaching research methods for about six years at that point and then after that um I'd been teaching dissertation stuff for like about nine years and I was like there was no book on it and so I wanted to do it and I had all the resources from the lectures that I'd written and I thought I can turn that into a book that's a really big mistake um lectures <laughs> don't turn into a book which is why it took like which is why it took so long um and that's why it was like four years late so um and yeah, and I mean, I look at that book now and I, I find it quite difficult to look at because I think the, the start of it is not as good as the end of it. I think I kind of grew in confidence as I wrote it. But um, but yeah, it's a really important book for me. Um, and, I, you know, I was, as I said, I was told, you know, don't, don't write it, focus on your research. Um, and yeah, it wins no prizes for like, you know, no one really, um, to be honest, no one really cares. No one cares if you write a textbook. They care if you've written a great research paper. Um but, you know, I was asked um, in my job interview, actually, in Germany, what's the most important thing you've done? It's the most important thing I've done because it's the most read thing I've ever written. And also it's a very different style of writing. So you have a lot of freedom and you can write in your own voice. And that's really nice. So I, yeah, and I touch on some of those issues about the discipline in that book. Yeah, I I was really excited to see that you, when I was going through your works, that you You'd, you'd written a book like that. I feel like just if you, as you have said, I've, I've heard from many, you know, the don't do that. Don't go down that path. Um, and yet it seems like, <laughs> don't do <laughs> me to say that, as a, but I, you know, I feel like it really speaks to at least the picture that I got about you as a researcher, you know, as it speaks to your passion for your students in terms of, of building the next generation as um, Stefan was saying. And I'm curious if you found that, connecting with students in that way has any way engaged your work on a deeper level like has that do you feel like there's an intersection 
I don't know if this would have been anticipated or unanticipated between thinking about the methods from a student perspective, but then how that reflects on your own work and the work that you do. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you're so right. I mean, for me, I think that learning is a dialogue. I don't think it's a one way thing. I don't think it's my job to stand and have this position as like the educator. And then I, I you know, bestow my knowledge on the students. And, and I think that um it's, you know, so much of that book and there's loads of examples in that book that actually come from 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 my students. And so kind of spoke to them and said, you know, can I include this in the book? And and they were really pleased. And actually students have written bits of that book. So if you flick through it, it's actually got excerpts that are written by students because it was really important to have their names in there. You know, that it wasn't me appropriating their ideas, but that they were there front and centre. Um, yeah. And so, I mean, I learn I learn from my students every day and. And yeah, I think they have informed certainly the way um, the biggest thing is they shape how I teach. um, Definitely. And also, yeah, just in terms of what I do, because supervising so many dissertation projects, um, which is is quite a large chunk of your work, particularly in the UK. um, You know, you just see so many fascinating projects and it just you see students take an idea and just run with it and make it their own and there's nothing more joyful in the job at all than just you kind of you you give one line to a student and then they run with an idea and that's and then the ones that can't run with it you can help them so that they can find their way through with it and that's really yeah so I would say I learn as much from my students as hopefully the other way around So that makes me want to get more into your work as you talk about the passion in that and Stefan I think you wanted to go there too yeah well, I want to go into, so now you're professor of marine governance in, in Oldenburg at the, oh, I'm going to say it wrong, but it's a Helmholtz Institute for Marine Biodiversity Conservation. Mm. This is a relatively new institute in, in, in Germany, which I see as, an, as a move towards an interdisciplinary effort to understand uh, marine systems. And I don't think it's a, a heavy on the social science and I'm not exactly sure how the the institute is organized. I would see it more as it's driven from a natural science perspective and then including social science components. And one question I always come back to is, is how does a human geographer and an ecologist have a conversation about how to do joint research together? And I would imagine with the formation of this new institute of which you're going to be a big part of, that those discussions are happening pretty regularly. Mm. Yeah, I mean, so it's, it is a really exciting new institute. One of the, you know, going back to your first question about, you know, what was the driver for the job? You know, you have very few opportunities in this job to start something from scratch, to really be able to shape what it becomes. I think you're right here, started from a natural science perspective, and I have quite a task, which is to, and the conversations that I've had is to ensure that social science is not an add-on. It's something I feel really passionately about is that social science, political science, qualitative, subjective approaches are not an add-on. You know, they shouldn't be an add-on to a research bit. They shouldn't be an add-on to a paper. And social science shouldn't be an add-on to this institute, just something that it just, you know, we, we need the random social scientists because we, we're going to get the funding. And so, so far, one of the reasons that the job was so appealing to me um, is that that desire to collaborate is, is very genuine, or I found it to be very genuine. You know, people who are willing to 
there's a real openness of discussion of, okay, well, I don't understand that, but explain it to me and explain how that, how that, what your perspective is. And I would say also an equal openness on my side, because of course there are things that I don't know, and I don't understand. And so it's been this kind of like two way conversation and we have these um, monthly meetings that bring, bring us together. And we always have a kind of topic. We were talking about thresholds the other day, which was really interesting. You know, like in science, it's a threshold, a threshold. But then a social scientist, like, ha, oh, thresholds of construction. So <laughs> how do you go? Where's the tipping point? You know, so actually you, you kind of, you, you come and you have such interesting conversations. And I think that ultimately the most important thing is openness and respect. And that you're not always going to agree. You're not always going to agree. You're not always going to see things in the same way. Um and that's okay. Um, and there are always going to be, I think, in the Institute now, there's always going to be some projects that are primarily physical sciences, natural sciences. I think there's going to be some projects that will be solely social science. But I think there are going to be some interesting opportunities for collaborations that see a, a very a very collaborative collaboration that isn't social sciences add-on or natural sciences add-on, but that have been, that have come from the ground up. Mm-hmm. Round up. So many like landed spatial metaphors. Um, kind of <laughs> we'll get to that. Yeah. So, so yeah. So I think yeah. For me so far, it's been really good because the conversations have been have just been really open. That's wonderful. One thing I've been thinking about is to move in towards an interdisciplinary space and even a perhaps a, a non-disciplinary space framing of of research. I wonder this idea that you have to leave and let go of your disciplinary comfort zone. And I wonder if if you've had any thoughts or experience with that, that we want to be interdisciplinary. A lot of people think it's a great idea, but then when it comes down to the, the details, you're still f- fairly firmly positioned in what you're comfortable in doing. Uh, because I think one, because there's a big learning experience which goes along with, with that. And to admit that you have uncertainty or that you don't know something even though you've been working in science for many years do we have to let go a little bit more oh yeah absolutely like i'm having a total identity crisis at the moment um, <laughs> you know because i think the biggest identity crisis everyone describes me now as a social scientist i would never describe myself as a social scientist i'd always say i'm a geographer and and then you know you do reflect on that and you think well being a geographer is is actually a really you know it means a certain set of things that are in themselves really problematic and so one of the things I've found so far is that it's very freeing to let go of some of those things it's totally okay to not to not know about things it's totally you know in fact it's really interesting I learn something new every day which is really nice and really cool um <laughs> but yeah it's, I think it's really freeing to kind of let go of it and sometimes it's a bit uncomfortable because you you are untethered from you know, one of the things you find, or I find at least, is there are many fields that are kind of writing about things that say geographers have been writing, you know, so there are other fields that are writing about similar things that geographers write about, they're just writing about it in a different way. And so all the things you think are original about your own your own disciplinary home are actually not really that original at all. And so it kind of like pulls the rug out and it's a bit uncomfortable. But then that's, I, you know, I think that's good. And perhaps the best ideas come from or the best, most productive moments come from being uncomfortable. You mm. know, and I think I think we should be prepared to be that in our in our careers. So yeah. yeah. I think that's a great 
a great moment to think about <laughs> being uncomfortable. I want to switch to thinking about the the more the content of your work, if that's mm-hmm. all right. And and I wonder if maybe that maybe there's this link between that being uncomfortable and some of the like new spaces that you're trying to explore in your research. And how you describe, at least reading through your website and some of your articles describe this focus on the sea is, um, and water as sort of new territory. Although I know territory is an interesting word that you dissect um, in your work. But um, I'm curious where that focus came from for you. Where did you, how did you initially get interested in focusing on water and the sea and these spaces that are not traditionally the focus of geography yeah so I think that's that's pretty much what it comes down to is that geography as a discipline is very grounded so going back to that that definition of earth writing geographers have taken the earth really seriously like the earth the ground the the solidity of kind of geographers tend to look inwards to the land they haven't really looked outwards so we've taken that title of earth writers really seriously um and if you look at the kind of history of geographic work it has been very landlocked and so i guess at the time at which i was studying i was interested in i was interested in sort of concepts of place i was interested in ideas of like resistance and transgression and that's kind of how I sort of started as a geographer. I was interested in like the geographies of that, like where does resistance happen? Where does transgression happen? Where do those moments of like political activism happen? And it kind of took me to see really, because I was like, well, how does this play out in the ocean? And how do different spaces of legal jurisdiction in the sea and different spaces of governance, how do they enable or not certain activities to happen? things that might be resistant, things that might be deemed to be transgressive to landed ways of looking at things. And that's kind of where things sort of began um, when I started my PhD. And so it was really this kind of trying to, as I guess everyone does when they research, you're trying to find a niche, you're trying to find the thing that's original. And it's like, well, kind of geographers have sort of done this a lot on land, but oh, wow, what about the sea? And at the same time, there were a sort of couple of people beginning to write a about the ocean and write about the sea from a sort of human geographical perspective. That's kind of back in the sort of mid-2000s. And so, yeah, so my kind of work kind of came together with that, really. And so the sea partly came from this interest, academic interest. But then I've always, like, I've always loved the sea. So, you know, I spent every holiday with my my nan, lived by the sea. And my mum used to pack us off every summer, my poor mum. My mum was a a single parent and she used to be like oh no summer holidays like send them to their grandma <laughs> so off we went and we would spend these summer holidays with my nan by the sea and so it was kind of it's always been this sort of place that's been really special so these kind of interests kind of came together this kind of long sort of love of the sea and then this sort of niche in terms of finding a space for my academic work and then it just kind of it kind of went from there really um yeah, so that's how it's all emerged. I'm not doing a very good job at answering these questions. No, it's great. I well, it's interesting to to go as you're talking about your interests and in, and how how the space of the sea hasn't really been you know the focus of geography. But then earlier in our conversation, how you're talking about these explorers and going across the sea and you know this long history of 
seafaring and um and the like pivotal role that that's played in allowing geography to become the field that it is um i wonder what that has been like for you in you know opening up this new space in geography but then it seems like also recognizing you know the deep embeddedness that it already had within the field yeah i think that has been you know i yeah i think so i've just finished writing a paper that's about that very about that very topic and you know and i think one of the i think it i think it's i think it's incredibly you know you you go through your academic career and you sort of you have these moments and you're like okay geographers are focusing on the sea but then if you say the sea's been intrinsic to the whole development of, of geography as a discipline and so this new kind of paper sort of says that we have to understand that geographers have all have always have always looked at the sea and the sort of development of that sort of anthropocene oceans and the way we even understand how climate change is happening now is linked back to the transatlantic slave trade and the kind of industrialization of the world and you can't separate out how we think about climate science and the oceans from these moments of of kind of um colonialism um imperialism and so yeah i think that has been one of the things particularly my colleague phil steinberg has been writing about as well i mean my my own work um has centered less on the kind of perhaps the argument that that geography that the sea is new to geography and more that how do we study geography at sea um but i think that geographers of the sea you know i think we have a responsibility to be writing more about about those histories that are implicated within our discipline you know i've just written a new course that i'm teaching here in oldenburg and you know i mean just as an example you know one of the first things they're reading is you know the black jacobins you know read some clr james you know read some fanon you know kind of and i think that those things are really important to for students to be reading those voices and not and not always reading the same the, the same kind of churn of the academic canon basically so yeah yeah i definitely don't get it right and i think that's really important to say but um yeah. Well, it's really great to, well, it's interesting to hear you grappling with that because, you know, the, I think that's something, as I'm sure you know, you know, across the U.S. right now mm-hmm. is a huge topic of conversation. Mm-hmm. And I've, you know, with that have been in you know, multiple of these either webinars or, well, in the age of Zoom and COVID, mostly it's online um, conversations about race and racism and as well as, you know, integrating integrating diverse voices and and how do we do that and then you find yourself in a room that's you know predominantly white the male female splits may be getting a little better but it's something i think about a lot so it's it's nice to hear you reflect on it that doesn't give us any resolution there yeah but i think that struggle is maybe the place to be right now yeah i get this impression that with your perspective and maybe that's something which is also can be generalized to human geography is that you can't or that by doing your empirical research you also have to do research on the science system itself and how that science is produced and you can't decouple the empirical work from how and why and with what historical past the empirical work that we're doing is justified and i don't know if many other disciplines have that so much at the forefront of the conversation 
where it's so much intertwined into the empirical process, I would say, into into trying to get our understanding of the world. Does that is that also the way you would see it, or do you do you think other disciplines also have that to some extent embedded? Um, I think you know, I definitely think that for geographers, at least, I think that our reflecting on our positionality is so crucial to what we do. Um, you know, I would never write an article without using the first person because I'm part of authoring whatever knowledge that, you know, and you either have to admit that you have, you you author it because you are, you know, because you are part of the knowledge that you've created. And then, you know, you can look back on that and you might be responsible for that knowledge that you've, that you've authored in, in those different ways. And, and I think that reflecting on, on your position is really, really, is really important. Um, you know, and it's something that we do a lot with um, with geography students. You know, students are always are always kind of taught to be careful about thinking about how you're authoring the world, how you're writing the world. Going back to that earth writing, you know, how are you writing about the world? What are you writing about? What what kind of you know? Because you're creating that knowledge that shapes the understanding of how people then engage with the world. And yeah, so I think you know, and I think I think that is. Yeah, it's something that I very much grapple with in my own work. Yeah, very much so. I was looking at your website. Another thing that you wrote that you focus on is how does power integrate into the marine environment and this notion of power. I, th- I think it touches, or you touched on that quite well uh, in the last questions. But I'm also interested in this idea of, which we've touched on a few times now, is is space or place or the difference between them. Uh, also, and this general idea that a lot of concepts that evolved and also governance uh, institutions and the way that we think about governance evolved on land. And a lot of those, I think, are, you know, because that's where we have knowledge embedded in the past, mm-hmm. transplanted into the sea, which uh, has a different type of materiality, uh, I think, physically and culturally. And I wonder what what is a more nuanced way of looking at space uh, and territory and some of these topics which you you focused on and why is it important to see them differently? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, again, if you're free next week to take one of my lectures, that would be awesome. Um, <laughs> I think, yeah, I mean, I, I I think you've summarized it really nicely, which is, um, you know, we have we have taken lots of governance techniques from the land and again, like yeah, like the history of like. The history of the nation state is really interesting to me um, because I think we've taken those spatial logics of bordering and containing and we do take them to the sea. But I think, you know, as you've noted, one of the things that I'm really interested in my work is that there are certain there are certain qualities to different kinds of spaces that perhaps demand that we think outside of the box quite literally in terms of how we govern, because can you you know, you, you can't build a wall and put a fence up in the ocean, yet we insist on doing so. You know, every time we draw up an MPA, every time we draw up a marine spatial plan, that's what we're doing. You know, we're using this kind of, we're almost locked in or boxed into this kind of very territorial way of thinking. And we do so with a variety. We do it with the way we carve up airspace. We do that vertically as well. Um, you know, and we see that in, in terms of the ways... Um, that we govern orbits in outer space as well, which is really interesting, which is kind of, I've been writing about outer space recently, which is 
Yeah, it was kind of cool. And um, yeah, and we we kind of we want to sort of fix in place things because that's how traditionally humans have controlled resources and space. Um, so yeah, I think a lot of my work recently has been trying to sort of to borrow the words from a, a sort of scholar of territory, Stuart Eldon, he kind of says we shouldn't fall into the territorial trap, but rather we should try to think about how we can govern spaces like the sea differently um, because they are different kinds of territories. Yeah, being at a at an institute focused on marine biodiversity conservation makes me think that a lot of the conservation efforts in the past have been exactly that, trying to create spaces where certain things happen and other things don't. Well, I'm curious as a follow-up to that is in your work, have you come across alternatives? You know, what are some different ways of, <laughs> if you don't draw the line, what are some di different ways of thinking about it or um, governing spaces without rigid boundaries? Yeah, so I was I was quite, quite fortunate. A couple of years ago, um, I started a project that was called Invisible Infrastructure. And it was this idea that there are, particular infrastructural arrangements that you can draw on the ocean that are that you can't see because they're invisible like you know you want to create a build a road on land you can see it you want to build a road in the ocean you can build one but you can't see it so what's this kind of invisible infrastructure and how does it how does it function and that project was all about um tracing the formation and operation of global ship ship routing schemes so how do we guide global shipping around the world and how does that form and forge the kind of sort of contemporary um sort of landscape of trade as we currently know it and how have we done that historically and how do we do that now and that took me in 2016 2017 to alaska where they are with the opening of the bering strait with ice melt, they are thinking about the development of a ship routing measure because, you know, you don't want to have ships colliding or having accidents in a waterway that has, of course, in the past had terrible marine accidents and wreaked all kinds of um, harm on the marine environment. And one of the most interesting things that they are discussing there is not so Normally, when you put in a ship routing measure anywhere in the world, it's, it's an incredibly static thing. Even though it's about ship routing, things that move, they're very static. Um, there's over 400 of these things called maritime motorways around the world. They just literally split maritime space into two lanes. That ship must go that way. That ship must go that way. That's it. That's how it kind of works. That's what they wanted to do through Bering. And of course, people were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Ice moves. It's not always going to be in the same place. And and also, you know, we've got a really rare form of whale in this water. And, and wow, they move. And so um, you're seeing this kind of development there of what some people would like to see put in place. There is not this very static measure which is used in over 400 waterways around the world. But they want to see what they call a kind of um, a dynamic area. So mm -hmm. where you might have a measure that's in place for six months of the year and then it moves. And all of these things become much more possible with some of the tech that we have now, because, of course, the old traditional map for marine navigation is less important. Now we have e-maps. We can redraw maps much more quickly than we could in the past. So these these ideas of more dynamic zones, there are a few, there are a few examples of this emerging. It'll be interesting to see if that is a way that, that marine governance goes. Yeah, it's really, it's really fascinating because I feel like there, and there's so many... Um, corollaries like you just said with wildlife with 
so many other types of resources on land. So it does feel like that's one area where maybe the marine can really influence than what we do on land with resources yeah. where you can't see everything. Yeah. I work a lot in groundwater and as much as we're getting, you know, technically more and more advanced in terms of where the water is and how do you define the boundaries, there's always a degree of uncertainty and there's yeah. always movement. And um, I think that is really one of the frontiers is how do you think about managing these resources in a way that's not it's a different form of static. You know, we've mm. been static in terms of the quotas and the numbers, but there's another form of static in terms of the boundaries. I think yeah. that is really fascinating. Mm. Yeah, and fascinating. Yeah. What types of projects would you like to get involved in and to push forward? Yeah, I think I think for me the crucial thing is is taking a geographic approach to governance. I think often the geography is quite taken for granted in a lot of um, marine social science, it's like, well, yeah, of course it takes place somewhere. But there needs to be an acknowledgement that that somewhere matters. So, you know, it matters in terms of the people, it matters in terms of the culture, it matters in terms of the history, it matters in terms of of what will work and what won't work. And so I think um, my vision, say so, it's like sort of, you know, it's, yeah, you know, it's it's a responsibility, I think, to, to have that kind of position and that, um, and, you know, and, and I take that very seriously in terms of what's possible with it. Um, but I think it is ultimately to take this geographic approach to thinking about governance, that, that governance happens somewhere and that somewhere shapes it. And, and we have to take that geographical context seriously. And I'm interested in, alongside that, I think, uh, bringing in more of all of my work has always had a very historic component. A lot of my work is archival. So I work with people, but I also spend a lot of time with paper and with records and diaries and things from the past. And, you know, I think that we have to understand and grapple with the past to be able to attend to the future. And, you know, I think that's also the crucial thing that I want to be bringing to the Institute that we can't, again, you know, a bit like geography, you know, a maritime institute perhaps sets out to think, yeah, we want to make the oceans a better place and we want to protect them and we want to preserve them and we want to conserve them and we want to replenish and we want to do this and we want to restore. But actually, it's about thinking critically about about how you can do that and who should be doing that, who should be involved and how and why and under under what under what terms. So I think the historicization is really important and that will be um yeah like lots of people kind of don't understand they're like what you're not going into the field to kind of field to do research you know and like you know i think the archives are as much of a field so bringing in that historical component and that geographic component is the sort of vision thanks for tuning in the in common podcast is produced by michael cox courtney hammond wagner and myself We are a partner project of the International Association for the Study of the Commons and the International Journal of the Commons. To listen to more episodes, you can find us on any podcast app or listen on our website, www.incommonpodcast.org. On our website, you will find our link to our blog and our Patreon page where you can make a small donation to help us cover our operating costs. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at InCommonPod.